Welcome back to The Good, The Bad and The Bogus. This is David Free. Today I'm going to be doing another one from my archive. This is an essay that I published a few years ago about my childhood relationship with the band ACDC. It was commissioned for a book called Rock Country, which was published by Hardy Grant. And when they republished the book as a paperback, they called it The Best Music Writing Under the Australian Sun. That's their words, not mine. For international listeners, there are a few terms in here that might need to be explained. Root is a verb that Australians use when they're being too polite to say fuck. And a bogan is a kind of suburban redneck or ruffian. So this is what I wrote a few years ago about ACDC. It's called ACDC and Me. I was an aficionado of cock rock long before I ever heard it called that, and indeed well before I possessed a discernible cock of my own. At the age of nine, I was an authority on KISS. At the Forgambridge Primary School Talent Show in 1979, three friends and I performed a dramatic mimed rendition of I Was Made For Lovin' You. We wore all the relevant face makeup painstakingly applied by my friend's sisters. Where appropriate, we wore capes. We wielded nylon string guitars, borrowed from teachers who used them by day to accompany group renditions of Frere Jaca. My friend Colin Selway, portraying Peter Chris, played fake drum rolls on the school's minimalist kit. I was Gene Simmons, the demon. Whether I did the tongue stuff, I don't recall. Actually, I do recall, but I'd prefer not to dwell on it. A year later, at the talent show of 1980, we put away childish things. Unmasked, dressed in decidedly more casual threads, we appeared as ACDC. In July of that year, the band had released the monumental Back in Black album. They had a new lead singer, the enigmatic Brian Johnson. You Shook Me All Night Long was the album's lead single, and that was the tune that crackled over the school's PA while we fake-strummed our Spanish guitars. Did we care that ACDC had five members rather than four? Yes, but not enough to bother recruiting a fifth kid. Did we know what it meant to shake a woman all night long? Not in very much detail. Johnson made it sound gruelling, but worthwhile. Sadly, I didn't get to dress up as Johnson myself. That plum role had been claimed by my alpha bandmate Kevin Meeks, who was, to be fair, the ringleader of the whole project. Meeks's costume wasn't elaborate. All he had to do was rip the sleeves off his shirt and put on a cloth cap. The cap was key. Who knew what Johnson's face looked like underneath it? Somebody else, I can't remember who, but it still wasn't me, got to be Angus. Since Angus dressed up as a schoolboy anyway, this wasn't much of a stretch. Third in the pegging order, I got to be Malcolm. I didn't know much about rhythm guitar, but I was in awe of Malcolm's long hair and overall dress sense. Above all, I envied his Levi's. My own jeans hailed from a far humbler house of denim the kind that didn't care to advertise its name or logo on the back pocket. They were made of a royal blue 
plywood-like fabric that bafflingly refused to soften or fade. I looked like Woody Guthrie preparing to board a 1930s freight train. Certainly I made a flawed Malcolm. How I yearned to be Johnson. Yes, I wanted to be the one out there at the front, in the cloth cap, fake singing those imperishable lyrics. Taken more than her share, had me fighting for air. She told me to come, but I was already there. Mind you, the ingenious double meaning of those lines was lost on the ten-year-old fan. As far as we could tell, Johnson merely seemed to be indicating that he was a fast runner. Which was odd, he didn't look like one. But if Johnson's efforts to raise awareness about male sexual dysfunction were beyond us, we were savvy enough to get the main thing right. Back in Black was, as we phrased it in those days, unreal. Forty years later, it still stands as the second biggest selling album of all time, comfortably ahead of Dark Side of the Moon and second only to Thriller. It was a seminal record in every sense of the word. Before Back in Black, ACDC was still a fundamentally Australian band, even though its three most prominent members had spent their childhood years in Scotland. After Back in Black, Australia was too small to contain them. They belonged to the world. And it all happened so fast. At the beginning of 1980, the band's lead singer was still Bon Scott. Bon, the lavishly tattooed larrikin, master of the Wicked Leer and the hard rock bagpipe solo. Scott was averse to shirts, and he dressed quite visibly to the left. In the crotch of his ferociously tight jeans, something large and sinister was ominously coiled, like a chorizo in a vacuum pack. With Scott as frontman, the group had cut six albums between 1975 and 1979. In those days, bands didn't muck around. Their most recent effort, Highway to Hell, had finally broken them in America. In early February, the group convened in London to start work on a new album. The Young Brothers had stockpiled some promising new riffs. Bon had jotted some lyrics in his notebooks. Just how many lyrics remains controversial, because the notebooks subsequently went astray. And then, on February the 19th, 1980... Bon Scott was found dead in a friend's car. He was only 33. Here was another mystery for the pre-teen fan to ponder. How was it possible to choke to death on your own vomit? Superstitious youngsters of whom I was one, worried about the way Bon's death had so swiftly followed the success of Highway to Hell. I'm on my way to the promised land, Bon had sung. Did God watch Countdown? Had he dispatched Bond to the Lake of Fire to teach him a lesson? There are fully grown adults on the internet who believe to this day that that's exactly what happened. After Bond Scott's death, the surviving members of the group considered giving up, but with encouragement from Scott's mother, they decided to ride on. In March, they started auditioning new singers. One of them was a nuggety bloke from Newcastle, the English Newcastle, with a brillo-pad hairstyle and a voice like a dentist's drill. His name was Brian Johnson, and he and the band clicked instantly and resoundingly. On April the 1st, only six weeks after Scott's death, Johnson was officially named ACDC's new lead singer. 
In May, the band flew to a studio in the Bahamas to record Back in Black. The album was released in July, and in November, there we were in the primary school hall, jamming along to its first single. Whatever it was that eventually made 50 million other people buy the album, we heard it straight away, and we were only 10. What did we hear? First of all, we heard the riffs. The two finest riff merchants Australia has ever produced were brothers, and they were in the same band. The Youngs are up there with Jimmy Page, they're up there with Keith Richards himself, as manufacturers of instantly memorable guitar grooves. Back in Black was stuffed with so many bankable riffs that the ludicrously catchy Shake a Leg, which I firmly believe to be the coolest tune on the whole record, never even made it out as a single. If it had appeared on nearly any other album in the world, Shake a Leg would have been a surefire 45. On Back in Black, there were too many other tracks to choose from. One of them was Hell's Bells, the first song on side A, with its slow, dirty, ominous overture. Forty years later, that intro still gets played over the PA before big football matches. It promises that something primal and violent is about to happen something definitively male, and the scary build of those lock-stepping guitars is accompanied famously by the tolling of a large bell. It rings 13 times, which seems to signify something. But what? Was its knell a tribute to the departed Bon? Well, this is how Malcolm once explained the genesis of the bell idea. Quote, I was just taking a piss and I just thought, Hang on, why don't we get a big fucking bell? End quote. Flip to the start of the B-side, and you had the title track with its crunching three-chord intro. The fifth, the fourth, the first. Chord progressions don't get more meat and potatoes than that. Any chump of a beginning guitarist can play those chords, but it took the Young Brothers to combine them in exactly that way to buffer them with a couple of crucial silences, then stitch them together at either end with those funky little turnaround licks. The result is an eternally fresh riff that speaks directly to the gonads. Try listening to that tune without thrusting your genital area at something, even if it's only the nearest wall. And then, over and above the riffs, we heard Johnson's voice. Sometimes we could even hear what it was saying. In the case of the title track, it wasn't hard. Consider the song's chorus. Quote, Cause I'm back, yes I'm back. Well I'm back, yes I'm back. Well I'm back, back, I'm back in black, yes I'm back in black. Again, we're dealing with the most rudimentary of ingredients, but when Johnson sings those lyrics in context over the controlled hurricane of those guitars, you get one of the most rousing choruses in hard rock. That was the alchemy of ACDC. They had the knack of turning meat and potatoes into gold. The chorus of Back in Black sounds exactly the way you feel when you're in your prime and ready to show the world who's boss. And that was the mood of the whole album. The band had suffered a near-terminal blow. In Rock's short history, what other major band had ever recovered from the death of its lead singer? It was hard to think of one, but ACDC were about to give it a red-hot go. They were back, and they meant business. 
ACDC and I went our separate ways eventually. A year after Back in Black, they released For Those About to Rock. Either it was a disappointing album, or my tastes were evolving, or maybe both. For another year or two, I expanded my collection backwards, adding albums from the Scott era. But the evidence suggests that my ACDC phase was over by 1983. When Flick of the Switch came out in that year, I didn't buy it. I remember feeling a sentimental pang in 1990 when they had a hit with Thunderstruck. I could tell, abstractly, academically, that it was their most bitching song since the Back in Black era. But I just wasn't into it anymore. I couldn't feel it. It was like looking into the face of a person you no longer loved. At around the same time, I heard that the PSYOPs division of the American Army had played ACDC songs at apocalyptic volume in order to smoke Manuel Noriega out of his Panamanian bolt hole. I sympathised with the strong man. I'd have surrendered too. Maybe I was getting old before my time, but by the age of 20 I found it distinctly hard to believe that I had ever derived pleasure from listening to Johnson's singing voice to those stuck-pig vocals, as the critic Kurt Loder once called them. So that's the kind of ACDC lover I am, then. A lover who has largely moved on. These days I no longer look like much of a headbanger, but chop me in half like an old redwood, look to the inner rings of the trunk, and you'll still find the ten-year-old who believed that ACDC held the key to pretty much all of life's mysteries. At that age, you badly need clues about what the adult world has in store for you. Listening to ACDC was like putting your ear to the tracks and hearing the rumble of the oncoming train. Their world was so grown up. Alcohol, cigarettes, earrings, tattoos, prison. Wouldn't that be cool? And sex. Above all that. I don't think we really knew what it was yet, but we somehow understood that ACDC's music was almost exclusively about it. The sleazy and insistent jolting of those guitars, the prodding throb of that proletarian rhythm section, Scott's insinuating leer, Johnson's grimaces and grunts and whinnies, and the gaunt and shirtless Angus sweating and labouring over the neck of his cherry-red axe. All these things resonated with us at a level even lower than the gut. They spoke to parts of us that were on the brink of acquiring some high voltage of their own. Girls didn't seem to like ACDC nearly as much as boys did, and I believe I can now see why. The days when kids needed record albums to solve the world's mysteries are long gone now, of course. In the information age, there are no unanswered questions left, least of all about sex. Click a mouse button, and you can watch videos that would have made Bon Scott wince. But back then, well, we're talking about a vanished era, clearly. It wasn't just that there was no internet, there wasn't much else either. On TV, there were four channels. The edgiest show I'd ever seen was Welcome Back Cotter. There were no VCRs, let alone video shops. When you went to the cinema, you went under parental supervision. If you wanted to hear candid adult talk, what you mainly had was records, and the records that spoke most brazenly were the records of ACDC. Mind you, ACDC didn't make things easy for you by including printed lyrics with their albums. 
Sometimes the first mystery you had to solve was what in Christ's name the singer was even saying. This was a particular problem in Johnson's case, unless you happen to speak fluent banshee. But the way I remember it, I think we assumed that a certain portion of any given lyric was simply not meant to be intelligible. Understanding 50% of what Johnson said seemed a reasonable goal. Endlessly speculating about the other half gave us something to talk about. We sat in front of the speakers, leaned in close, and dropped and re-dropped the needle on the disputed areas of each track. Why not? We had the time. Music was a far more social thing back then. Social in the sense that it involved coming face-to-face with other people. If you wanted to hear a record you didn't have, you went to a friend's place and listened to it there. Either that or you bought it, which was a social act too. You had to go down the street and exchange cash for an object. Theoretically, it was possible to make and trade tapes, but to get a clean copy you needed a cassette deck that jacked straight into your amplifier. And who in the late 70s had one of them? Nobody I knew. In desperate circumstances, you could shove a portable recorder up against one of your speakers, but the resulting tape made the band sound as if it was performing at the bottom of a well. Plus, you could hear other things in the background. Distant lawnmowers, the slamming of screen doors, barking dogs. Even at the age of 10, we were picky enough audiophiles to frown on recordings of that sort. My own copy of Back in Black still has the original price sticker on it. It cost $8.99. When you earned 50 cents a week in pocket money, that was a serious purchase. You made recon visits to the record shop first, as if you were buying a car. But when you finally forked over your hard-earned pair of Caroline Chisholm's, you got something excitingly tactile in return. The vinyl record album was a glorious object. The artwork on the cardboard sleeve was big enough to pour over and admire. If you were lucky, the sleeve folded open to reveal more artwork on the inside. The pictures were a vital part of the album's aura. Records had character. They made you feel you'd invested in something solid. Back in Black, of course, had no cover art or gatefold. In tribute to Bon, the front of the album was entirely black, except for some white edging around the band's name. But if you ran your fingers over the cardboard, you could feel the title in embossed capitals, black on black. Slipping the disc itself from its staticky U-shaped sleeve you had to decide which side to play first. I always preferred Back in Black's B-side. I still know it far better than the A. When you blew on the needle to get the ball of dust off it, the speakers emitted an airy rumble that sounded like the firing of a hot air balloon. The record still hissed and popped anyway. If there was a fail-safe way of eliminating dust crackle, I never discovered it. Building my ACDC library backwards from Back in Black, I skipped Highway to Hell because a friend already had it. I got the Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap album, not just because it had Jailbreak on it, but because I couldn't resist the cartoon artwork on the sleeve with its bogan iconography. Phil Rudd wielding a pool cue, Malcolm in a blue singlet holding up a can of Foster's, Bon with his missing tooth and his Popeye-ish forearm, on which the album's name was prominently tattooed, 
Angus squinting out from behind his cigarette while lazily delivering an old-style Aussie up yours sign featuring two fingers instead of one. That original Australian version of the album is now scandalously hard to find on CD. What you get instead is a bastardised international edition. No cartoons on the cover, and a butchered track list from which Jailbreak has been wantonly removed. The two-fingered flip-off isn't the only treasure of Australian culture that's been trampled out of existence by the forces of globalisation. There was a song on Dirty Deeds called Big Balls, in which Bon Scott cunningly exploited some of the ambiguities inherent in the word ball. Some balls are held for charity, and some for fancy dress, but when they're held for pleasure, they're the balls that I like best. In those days, that qualified as cutting-edge filth. You couldn't hear bollock gags on TV, at least not before my bedtime. Scott's lyrics functioned as a kind of pornography, a mild kind, but in those days mild pornography was the best sort of pornography you could hope for. Porn-wise, we lived in an age of stark and bitter austerity. Pictures of even semi-nude women were devilishly hard to come by. A friend of mine's father had a pile of old Playboy magazines in his garage. Kids came from adjacent neighbourhoods to file reverently past the stash. It was as if he had the Book of Kells in there, or Mao's corpse. But the record player, when ACDC was on it, was a reliable source of smut. That stretch of deep pile carpet in front of the stereo was the internet of my childhood. It was unpoliced and anarchic. Your parents had no idea what was going on there. Poised reverently before the speakers, keeping dead still so as not to bump the needle, I received a disturbingly large chunk of my sex education from Bon Scott and Brian Johnson. We looked to both men as high authorities on the art of wooing and winning the ladies. They really did sing about sex a lot. And really, could you blame them? Listen to those thrusting guitar riffs. Let's face it, most of them were about fucking from the word go. So what else were Bon and Brian meant to sing about over the top of them? African debt relief? Needless to say, you had to wait till your parents were out before you could risk spinning a song like Big Balls at optimum volume. Kids on TV like Greg Brady had turntables in their own bedrooms, the spoiled American shits. They also had maids and fireplaces made of stone. But in my circle, the bedroom hi-fi system was an unimaginable luxury. You had to make do with your parents' stereo, which was invariably located in the main room of the house. Your opportunities to crank up the filth were sorely limited. By no accident, I was listening to an ACDC record when a friend of mine broke the news to me about the mechanics of human reproduction. The scene is scorched into my memory. It occurred late in the Scott era, which means that I'd managed to reach the age of eight or nine without hearing about the rudiments of copulation. In those days, such innocence was still possible. We were sitting in my friend's lounge room, which had thick 70s shag carpet, the colour of English mustard. Under the smoked perspex lid of the turntable, one of the early albums lazily revolved. The volume was on low, in case one of his parents walked in. My friend was two years older than I was, 
and he was already something of a man of the world. He invited me to give him my interpretation of Bon's lyric, I'll be your backdoor man. I conjectured that Bon, in an effort to avoid detection by some lady's husband, was offering to slip into the lady's house via an entrance hidden from the street. I still think that's a fair reading, by the way. But my friend replied by proposing a baser interpretation. I was horrified. I raised a certain technical objection, but that only served to make it embarrassingly clear that I had no real idea what a front door man was either. Well, my friend was happy to clear that one up for me too. On another occasion in the same room, the same friend tackled a task with a higher degree of difficulty. He tried to explicate Bon Scott's notorious lyrics to the Jack. This was a tricky job, since neither of us had actually ever heard the song. It appears on TNT, ACDC's second album, which no kid in our group actually owned. Even so, we all somehow knew that the Jack was meant to be Bond's filthiest lyric ever. Like the epics of Homer, the words were transmitted orally from person to person, in more or less garbled form. They had something to do with a game of cards, and the game of cards had something to do with rooting. But you needed to be an exceedingly worldly person to decode the symbolism. My friend took a shot, but I can now see that he got the whole thing hopelessly wrong. He tried to tell me that the song was about taking a girl's virginity. Probably he had it mixed up with the song Squealer, which really is about that. Anyway, my friend had it on good authority, or so he told me, that the lyrics to the Jack went like this. How was I to know she'd never been dealt with before? How was I to know she'd never had a full house before? And I believed him for about 30 years. And now, courtesy of YouTube, I find that what Bon Scott actually sings is this. How was I to know that she'd been dealt with before? She said she'd never had a full house. The young lady, in other words, is not a virgin after all. Quite the reverse. It horribly emerges via the metaphor of the Jack that the poor girl is a hotbed of venereal disease. Thank Christ I didn't have to take that one on board when I was 10. Sooner or later with ACDC, you get to the frontman question. If Bon Scott had stayed alive, would the band still have gone on to become massive, as distinct from merely quite large? We'll never know the answer. All we can confidently say is that Bon Scott's ACDC and Brian Johnson's ACDC were different bands with different merits. With Scott as frontman, the band felt homelier and more Australian, neither of which is a bad thing. He imposed his personality on things, and his personality was unusual. The way he leered down the barrel of the countdown camera, it seemed to indicate that he was taking the piss. So did a lot of his lyrics. This was a man who wasn't afraid to rhyme high society with ballroom notoriety. He was the Noel Coward of the testicle-related rock lyric. Not that Johnson was averse to writing about genitalia. The man's very name was a synonym for the schlong. But his approach was more direct. He preferred the sledgehammer to the rapier. In a hard rock singer, that isn't necessarily a demerit. In fact, it's almost certainly an advantage. Maybe ACDC needed a no-frills frontman like Johnson 
before it could achieve global hugeness. Johnson made the band seem less quirky, more universal. Bon was a one-off, and you don't hear people say that about Johnson. Johnson's more of an everyman figure, and he's strangely ageless. He doesn't look all that old now, but that's probably because he didn't look all that young back then. The fact that his lyrics are generally indecipherable probably counts as another global selling point. Fans who can't speak English are not missing out on a great deal. Nor, when you could actually understand them, did Johnson's lyrics give away much about his inner life, except that he enjoyed sex, preferably in the form of fellatio, and liked driving cars. Sometimes he was able to get both his favourite pastimes into a single lyric. She was a fast machine, she kept her motor clean, she was the best damn woman that I'd ever seen. If we took those lines seriously, we might conclude that all a woman had to do in order to strike Johnson as outstanding was keep her motor clean. Apparently he was associating with ladies who didn't do that as a matter of course. But obviously it would be a mistake to query Johnson's meanings too rigorously. The beauty of his lyrics has much more to do with their rhythmic drive than their semantic content. Piling up quick-fire rhymes in clusters of three or even four, Johnson gave the music an even more frantic sense of locomotion than it already had. She had the sightless eyes telling me no lies, knocking me out with those American thighs. Sightless eyes? Does that mean anything at all? Was the lady blind? On drugs? As kids, we thought Johnson was singing, she had me circumcised. A lyric that actually makes slightly more sense than the official one. But if Johnson had to throw in the odd, semi-meaningless phrase to keep things hurtling forward, who cared? In this case, you'd forgive him for just about anything, because he is building up to the most memorable phrase in the ACDC canon. Those American thighs. American thighs are a distinctive thing, all right, but had anybody ever saluted them in song before Johnson did? Not as far as I know. I still can't hear that lyric without picturing the then thighs of Farrah Fawcett, as depicted on the famous 1970s poster, the one where she wore an orange swimsuit over a suntan of an almost identical hue. Sometime later I heard a TV interviewer ask Johnson how he came up with the American thighs line. Johnson confessed that he'd never actually met an American woman at the time, but I'd seen a lot of them on the telly, he said, and I'd always wanted to fuck one. Well, we've all been there, but you wouldn't want to keep thinking that way as a grown man, at least not all the time. ACDC's music caters for that snarling portion of you that never stops thinking that way. It does what hard rock has always done. It appeals to the parts of you that aren't civilised. When you're a young male, almost all of you isn't civilised. As I entered my teens, my notion of the perfect woman still drew heavily on Johnsonian ideals. She was a fast machine in short shorts who could ride a mechanical bull without falling off it. I like to think that my erotic priorities have matured a bit in the years since. I no longer pine to meet a lady like that. I doubt we'd have much to talk about. These days I yield to none in my abhorrence of sexism. When I hear a lyric like, 
Stop your grinning and drop your linen for me. Johnson, 1980. I can detect almost immediately that it sells women a bit short and doesn't say much for men either. The older you get, the fuller your life is of things you've grown out of. But before you could grow out of them, you had to grow into them. And that was the fun part. Growing out of things leaves you wiser but crustier. After a while, it strikes you that there are some kinds of excitement you'll just never feel again. For me, the thrill of being almost a teenager will forever be linked with my enthusiasm for ACDC. Their music was the exact sonic equivalent of how it felt to be that young and raw, that full of energy. It was noisy, randy, unpretentious, bullshit-free, dirty but innocent, totally uninfluenced by fad or trend or hunger for social respectability. There is something laudably Australian about ACDC's straightforwardness. They're still making music, and it doesn't seem to have changed a bit. Almost to the end of his life, Malcolm still wore the same pair of Levi's that I hankered after in 1980. There will always be a place for ACDC's stuff, but the place is no longer my place, and it hasn't been for a while. When our passion for someone dies, said Marcel Proust, a version of us dies too. We become somebody new, somebody our former self wouldn't approve of or even recognise. By the time we've thickened into middle age, our past is littered with the corpses of our defunct loves. For Proust, that was good news in a way. It meant that the more weather-beaten we are, the less reason we have to fear death, since death has already happened to us before, many times. The man that I was, the fair young man, no longer exists, Proust wrote. I am another person. Brian Johnson, on the other hand, said, Forget the hearse, cause I'll never die. There are days when I find Brian's message more persuasive, or at least more invigorating. My ten-year-old self does still exist. He won't die till I do, if I do. Just occasionally, some unexpected jab from the outside world will bring him fleetingly out to play. About a year ago, I ran into my old friend and partner in mime, Kevin Meeks, the man formerly known as both Paul Stanley and Brian Johnson. It was a brief encounter, but we instantly fell back into our old dynamic, our old rapport. We didn't bother pretending to be respectable men. There's no point bullshitting somebody you knew when you were that young. Thirty years' worth of bark fell off us like rice paper. The same thing happens just once in a while. When I hear some half-forgotten scrap of ACDC, an outrageous lick from Angus, a shaft of lyrical single entendre, the tolling of a big fucking bell. For a ghost of a moment, I'm back there on the old shag carpet again, when all the good bits of my life seemed to lie ahead of me, and all the world's promise could be crammed into the grooves of one black disc.